Today's daf is Kaf in Masechet Betza. We are going to begin just uh, on the second line of the Amud, Amud Aleph, just to be sure that we're clear because in the Shi'ur on Daf Yud Tet, we went through it pretty quickly. I just want to make sure that it came across accurately. Ha'u gavra, da'amar lo'hu, havu le'arbam ma'azuzei liploni velinziv brati. There was a certain person who was on his deathbed, Rashi explains, and he said, give a hundred zoos, 400 zoos rather, to so-and-so, and he should marry my daughter. So these were his deathbed wishes, that 400 zoos should be given to this person, that, that the person should marry his daughter. Amar papa, Rabbam shakil, the recipient will get the 400 zoos. He will get the 400 zoos, but he ha- still has the option to marry the daughter or not to marry her. He's not bound by that condition. The reason is because of the order in which the condition was made, because he said, give him the money and he should marry my daughter. But if he had said, let him marry my daughter and then the money should be given to him. So then, really, he's making it dependent. He's saying if he marries her, then he gets the money. If not, he won't. But if he says, give him the money and he should marry my daughter, the two items are independent. Going back to what was discussed on the previous Amud about a person who says that they are making a commitment to bring a korban todah, but they'd like to use it to fulfill the mitzvah of the korban chagiga as well, and they thought they could piggyback on the fulfillment of the korban todah to uh, fulfill an additional obligation, that that doesn't count. You can't do that. So it so happened that Maraimar was saying this over in his own name. You learned it this way. You taught it this way as just a statement of halacha without any attribution to anyone else. We had it as a teaching that Reish Lakish uh, asked the question from Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Yochanan answered it. Um, we had a different version, but basically the same halacha, that you can't do that. Since you have an obligation of chagiga separate from the obligation of todah, even though the koban todah obligation is voluntary, it can't be used to fulfill another obligation. One time one of the re- reciters of Mishnayot, or of rabbinic teachings, said in the presence of Rabbi Yitzchak Barabba, the pasuk says that he brought the, the ola and, uh, and he did it in accordance with the law. Now, according to the way Rashi interprets it, and Tosafot actually uh, defends Rashi, although he gives an alternative uh, interpretation. In the end, he ends up defending Rashi because Rashi is actually the smoothest reading of the text here um, in terms of the problems that come up when you read it uh, in accordance with uh, Tosafot's alternative uh, interpretation. So we're going to go with Rashi. It's talking about the Ola that Aaron had to bring as part of his dedication ceremony during the Miluim period, the period of the dedication of the Mishkan. And he says he had to bring the Ola and he had the Vayaseh Kamishpat and he had to do it in accordance with the law. Kamishpat Olat Nedava, which is t- taken to mean in accordance with the law of Olat Nedava, a, a uh, voluntary offering. In other words, just like a voluntary offering requires Semicha, requires the person who brings it to lean on it, so too did this obligatory offering require the, uh, the owner to lean on it. Aaron had to lean on it. Lamed Alolat Chovash Tunasmicha. We learn from this that an obligatory Ola. Like, for example, Olat that a person brings when he comes for the Yom Tov, or any other uh, obligatory Olat requires Simicha by the owner. Uh, we learn it from the fact that Aaron had to lean on his korban during the Miluim, which itself was learned from the fact that uh, when the Torah describes voluntary offerings, it describes leaning. 
Amarlei, so Rabbi Yitzchak Barabbas said to this reciter of teachings, the Amar Lachmani, who was the author of this teaching that you just told me, Beit Shammai, that was Beit Shammai, because Beit Shammai holds that we don't learn from Shalmei Nedava, we don't learn obligatory Shlamim offerings, Shlamim offerings are the kind of offerings where we naturally eat part of the Korban, uh, so Shalmei Chovah, uh, obligatory Shlamim, we don't learn the laws of obligatory shlamim from the laws of voluntary shlamim. The, 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 it must be that this teaching goes according to Beit Shammai. Because just like Beit Shammai doesn't learn the laws of obligatory shlamim from the laws of voluntary shlamim, he also wouldn't automatically have learned the laws of obligatory uh, the laws of obligatory olot from the laws of voluntary olot. So he would need a pasuk. He would need a pasuk to tell you that you should make that derivation. Right, so the, otherwise we wouldn't know it. Okay, the Beitilel, because if we were going to say it's Beitilel, since we already know that Beitilel derives halachot from voluntary shlamim and he applies them to obligatory shlamim, because we see that he that Beitilel requires semichai requires leaning on shlamim, even if it is an obligatory shlamim of the individual. So olat chovanamiloti baikra. So similarly, there should be no question that Beit Hillel would assume that any law that applies to a voluntary Ola is also going to apply to a obligatory Ola. Not going to make a difference. So that's, that's the first suggestion. So basically Rabbi Tzachak Barabbah is saying that therefore, since the teaching says that we have a pasuk that teaches us that we learn from a voluntary shlamim to a, I'm sorry, from voluntary ola to an obligatory ola, it must be Beit Shammai and not Beit Hillel because Beit Hillel always will learn from the voluntary uh, instance of the korban to the obligatory instance anyway. But the Gemara says, is that really true? Is that really true? Because it could be that maybe we'll say differently that... Uh, uh, how do you know that Beit Hillel learns the laws of an obligatory shlamim from a voluntary shlamim? Maybe they actually learned it from olat chova, not from shalmei uh, nedava. In other words, if you want, maybe they compared obligatory offering to obligatory offering. And how did they know that a shlamim that's obligatory, such as the shlamim that a person brings on the yom tov, the chagiga, how did they know that that required smicha? They knew it because an obligatory ola requires smicha. In other words, they learn from obligatory offering to obligatory offering. Not from one type of shlamim, from voluntary shlamim to obligatory shlamim, but from obligatory ola to obligatory shlamim. And if that's the case, right? In other words, so how do you know that they didn't do that? And if that's the case, and therefore, how do we know that the ola tchova requires, requires smicha? We're going to need a separate pasuk for that. In other words, the idea is that perhaps this teaching that the Tanat said in front of Rabbi Yitzchak Barabba could be Beit Hillel. And the way it works is like this. We learn that an obligatory Ola requires smicha from the fact that, in, that a voluntary Ola requires smicha. We have a pasuk that tells us to learn one from the other. And what we learned about a voluntary Ola, we apply it to an obligatory Ola. And then what they did was they said, and if an obligatory Ola requires smicha, then an obligatory Shlamim also requires smicha. So they still need the pasuk to teach you, to make a bridge between the voluntary ola and the obligatory ola. They wouldn't naturally automatically know that. Right? So then the question, of course, is going to be, Why wouldn't they have learned from one type of shlamim to another? And said, a voluntary shlamim requires smicha. So an obligatory one also does. Why wouldn't they do that? Because they're very common. In other words, it's very frequent to... Uh, 
to have a shalmei nedava. People bring them all the time. They bring all kinds of shlamim that are uh, brought voluntarily. So maybe you, just because that requires smicha doesn't mean an obligatory one is going to require smicha. So you wouldn't know that necessarily. But me'olat chovanami lo gamrei. But maybe we can make an argument also not to learn it from an obligatory ola. Why not? Because shekin kalil. Because we know that an obligatory ola is different than a shlamim. It's completely burnt on the altar. None of it is eaten. So maybe the, the fact that it has semicha doesn't necessarily mean that a shlamim that is obligatory is going to have semicha. The Gemara says, It comes from between the two of them. In other words, what we say is like this, that we see that there is semicha by a case of a voluntary shlamim. But you could say, so maybe there should also be smicha by a, an obligatory shlamim. But you'll say, no, a voluntary shlamim has the distinction that it's a very common thing. People bring them all the time. Maybe that's why it has smicha. But you can't say that about an obligatory shlamim. Maybe an obligatory shlamim doesn't have smicha because it's not as common. Ah, but what about an olat chova? Obligatory ola. We see that an obligatory ola has smicha associated with it. You have to, you have to lean on the uh, obligatory ola. So, and, and it's not a common korban to bring. It's only obligatory once in a while. So you see that it's not the commonness that causes the obligation of smicha. So it's, it's the obligatory, the fact that it's obligatory. And therefore we should say that an obligatory shlamim also should require uh, smicha. But the Gemara says, yeah, but what about the fact that an ola is different? Ola is completely burnt on the altar. Maybe the fact that it's completely burnt on the altar means that therefore it's, uh, it, has, it also requires smicha. So the Gemara says, yeah, but look at a shlamim, voluntary shlamim. Back to voluntary shlamim. Uh, we'll say the voluntary shlamim, that's, that's not totally burnt on the altar. You eat the meat from that and it has smicha. So obviously it's not the fact that a korban is totally burnt on the altar that causes the obligation of smicha. And it's also not the fact that it's very common korban that causes it to have smicha. Rather, we see that shlami, that therefore we can learn from between the two of them, uh, as Rashi says, an individual korban that requires nesachim usmicha automatically is going to require accompanying libations as well as smicha. And that, therefore, uh, we're going to include also the obligatory shlamim. In other words, we learn it from the two other examples, from the general principle we can derive from them. Okay, so therefore we can still say that Beit Hillel actually was the one who said that we initially, we start off the process by learning from the voluntary ola to the obligatory ola, so that we know that the obligatory ola requires smicha, and then we can construct an entire argument to show that an obligatory shlamim should also require smicha. Now, Dude, Beit Shammai actually hold that shalmei chova, Obligatory shlamim doesn't require smicha. Is that true? Ve'atanya we learned in a brayta. Amar Rabbi Yosi lo nechleku beitchamay beitilel ala smicha atzma shetzarich. It wasn't a machloket about whether you need smicha or not. Alman nechleku. What did they argue about? El al techev lesmicha shchita. Whether the smicha has to be immediately before the off the, the slaughtering of the korban. Shebeitchamay omrim enotzarich. Beitchamay says you don't have to do it right at the time that you slaughter the korban, and therefore since you don't have to do it right then, do it before Yom Tov, so you don't have to deal with the prohibition of leaning on an animal on Yom Tov. Ubeitilel omrim tzarich. Whereas Tarikh and Betilel says Tarikh, you need it. You have to have smicha right before shechita. So that's the machloket. In other words, uh, this version says that it's not a question of whether the shalmei chova requires smicha. It's a it's a question of when the smicha has to be done. Hu ki he was saying, in other words, the previous discussion was following the pre- a different Tana. According to this version, 
Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel didn't argue about when you need smicha, that it always has to be right before the shechita. That when you need leaning on the korban, you, it has to be right before the slaughtering of the korban. The question was whether shalmei chova, such as the korban chagiga that's brought on, uh, on uh, Yom Tov, uh, whether that requires smicha at all or not. So we have two different versions. We have a version that says that the question between them was whether that korban requires smicha. And you have another version that says that no, that was not the question. The question was only whether the smicha has to be right before the shechita or not. We learned the rabbis taught. One time the elder Hillel uh, came to the Beit HaMikdash to bring his olah. He brought it to the courtyard uh, on Yom Tov and he was going to lean on it. The students of Shammai Hazaken, these are the original Beit Shammai, right? Amudo, they said to him, They said, What is this animal that you're bringing? This is a female animal, and I brought it as a shlamim. He wagged its tail a little bit so they would get the impression that it was a female. Now remember, an ola is always male. So he was trying to give the impression it was a female and therefore it would be a shlamim. And therefore, because remember that Beit Shammai says that you cannot bring the ola on Yom Tov. So he wanted to show that, uh, let alone could you lean on it, right? So the, uh, so he wanted to show them that no, he wasn't bringing uh, an ola on the Yom Tov. And, uh, and Rashi says, because of the great humility of Hillel, he lied to them because he didn't want to have a conflict. So he, uh, he told them that he was just bringing a shlamim, which even the Beit Shammai would agree with and would accept. And then they left. And, uh, and then it says, on that day, the strength of Beit Shammai overpowered Beit Hillel, and they wanted to establish the halacha in accordance with uh, Beit Shammai, because you saw that even Hillel, as I can, even the elder Hillel, felt intimidated by them, felt that they were the ones who had the upper hand, that he had to uh, at least uh, make it seem like he was following their halacha. So they almost established the halacha according to Beit Shammai, but there was one of the students of Shammai Azaken, who himself was an elder, and he knew, he knew the halacha follows Beit Hillel and not Beit Shammai, and it would be wrong for the Beit Shammai to impose, impose their rule on everyone. Vishalach, Vevi, Kol Tzon Kedar. He brought all of the sheep of Kedar, which was very excellent sheep quality. He brought all of the Tzon Kedar, the finest sheep to, uh, uh, that were in Yerushalayim. And he put them into the courtyard. He said, anybody who wants to come and lean on the Korban, come and do it. In other words, he was encouraging them to follow the law of Beit Hillel. Uh, and on that day, the hand of Beit Hillel was stronger, and uh, they established Allah in accordance with them. Since even a member of Beit Shammai himself, in other words, a member of the Beit Shammai school, uh, who was an elder, knew that the halacha followed Beit Hillel and pushed everyone to follow the halacha in accordance with Beit Hillel. So everyone realized that it was a lost cause and that the... Um, and that the halacha uh, would follow Beit Hillel in two respects. Number one, that you can bring your uh, ola on, on Yom Tov, and that you can, le- that you can lean on the korbanot. There was a su- subsequent story with one of the students of Beit Hillel. Again, he wanted to bring his ola on Yom Tov to lean on it. One of the students of Beit Shammai found him. I said, what is this smicha you're doing? What is this leaning? I said to him, what is this silence? 
In other words, he gave it back to him. So he, uh, he silenced him with, uh, with his rebuke and the guy left. You learn from this, Rabbi, that if a rabbinical student, if somebody says something to you nasty, you should never respond more than the person said to you. Meaning you shouldn't take it to the next level. You shouldn't escalate it. Because what did the other person say? What is this smicha you're doing? He was being sarcastic. What is this smicha you're doing? So he answered in the same number of words. What is the silence that I hear? In other words, he said, don't escalate. If somebody gives you a sharp word, respond to them uh, curtly, briefly, exactly as they spoke to you and don't take it any further than that. Tanya amru lahem beitilal beitshamai. Beitilal said the beitshamai, umav b'kom shasur leidiot mutal gavoa, b'kom shibutal leidiot eno dish mutal gavoa. We see that in a place where it's prohibited for a regular person to cook, for example, on Shabbat, it's still permitted for korbanot. It's permitted for the Most High. It's permitted for the Beit Hamikdash to have korbanot on Shabbat. On Yom Tov, where you're allowed to cook for yourself and slaughter for yourself for your own food on Yom Tov. So shouldn't it be permitted also for the Beit Hamikdash? So if a person wants to bring korbanot to the Beit Hamikdash, the Ola or the Shlamim, they should be able to do it. What are you talking about? Even on Yom Tov, where it's permitted for a person to uh, do melachot for his own food, for his own benefit, shechita and, and cooking and so on, we still see that uh, he's not allowed to bring nidarim and nidavot. He's not allowed to bring personal obligations that he had prior to the Yom Tov and offer them on the Yom Tov. He's only, in other words, Beit Shamayim, Beit Hillel, Beit Hillel himself is saying, they're saying that... Uh, that just like on Yom Tov, in other words, on Shabbat, you're allowed to bring korbanot in the Beit HaMikdash, even though a person's not allowed to slaughter and cook at home. On Yom Tov, where you're allowed to slaughter and cook at home, how could you not be allowed to bring your Ola and your Shlamim uh, as your offerings and appearance in the Beit HaMikdash? So uh, Beit Shammai says, what do you mean? Uh, even on a Yom Tov, you agree that you can't bring korbanot that you committed to in advance, and those are being given to God. So uh, obviously not everything given to God can you do on Yom Tov. You're not arguing with me about Nidarim and the Devot. You're not arguing with me about personal obligations. You're arguing with me about the Ola that's brought as an obligation when you appear in the Bet HaMikdash on the Yom Tov, the Ola Turiyah. And you are saying that we can't bring it. Why can't we bring it? If on Shabbat they're allowed to bring Korbanot in the Bet HaMikdash, why not on Yom Tov? And, and the answer is that that's, he said that's Kavuah Ozman. In other words, Nedarim and Nedavod, my personal obligations, I can bring them anytime. It doesn't have to be on the Yom Tov. So I understand why I do it a different day. But the Olat Riyah has to be done at the proper time. The ideal time is on the Yom Tov. How can he stop me from doing it? No, even the Olat Riyah, even the Olat that you're bringing when you appear in the Beit HaMikdash doesn't have a fixed time. Because we know that the person who didn't bring the Korban Chagiga on the first day of the holiday, they can do it the entire holiday. Even to the last day of the holiday. Um, so mean, meaning to say that you have a time extension of the entire holiday to bring these korbanot. And, uh, and so therefore, um, there's no reason to bring it on the first day of the Yom Tov. Because even the Shlamim that Beit Shammai allows you to bring, you're, uh, you're, if you missed it, you can do it later in the Yom Tov. Same thing with the Ola. Just do it later in the Yom Tov. So the Amrulahem Beit Hillel, Beit Hillel said to them, Lazman, even this, it has a fixed time. That if the holiday passed and you didn't do so, you don't have to make up for it. In other words, there's nothing you can do to make up for uh, the Koban that you missed. So you see that there is a time limit. There's a deadline. If you don't make it by the, the end of the holiday, you missed it. 
So you should be able to do it on the first day too. It says in the Torah that when you, you can do melachot lachem for yourselves, but not for Hashem. But doesn't it already say the word lashem, which means anything that is for Hashem, meaning it should be higher. The argument is that that should be even higher because it says, you celebrate the holiday for Hashem. So we see that, that dedication to Hashem should be even higher than my own personal needs. If for my own personal needs, I'm allowed to do malachot for eating. So certainly I should be able to do for a kadosh baruch Hu. That's the argument of Beit Hillel. So why then does it say lachem? You should do malachot for yourselves. Right? What does it mean uh, that you're allowed to, uh, you're allowed to, uh, you know, what it says that, uh, you can do for yourselves whatever melachot are necessary for eating and drinking on the holiday. That means, it means for you and not non-Jews and not for dogs. In other words, not for animal consumption and not for non-Jewish consumption. Only for the consumption of people celebrating the holiday are you allowed to cook on the holiday. That's the idea. But that doesn't mean to exclude the idea of Doing melachot in honor of Hashem. That's a different story. Abba Shaul had a different way of explaining this. If in a case where your pot, your oven, uh, or stovetop is, is sealed, the stove of your master is open. He's talking about Shabbat. On Shabbat, where you're not allowed to cook, and yet you're allowed to cook the korbanot. Where your stove is open, shouldn't the stove of your master also be open? In other words, any time that you can do for yourself, you should be able to do them for Hashem and therefore bring the Koban to Hashem on Yom Tov. Uh, so the Gemara asks, So, uh, so that your table should not be full and the table of your master empty. In other words, that's an argument to defend the idea of bringing these korbanot on Yom Tov. What's the machloket between the first version and the Abba Shul version? The difference is whether uh, individual obligations like nidarim and nidavot, donation and obligations that were taken in a vow, whether those can be brought on Yom Tov. According to the first version, the logic there and the discussion of Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai back and forth was based on the assumption that you cannot bring Nidarim and Nidavot. This is the way that Rashi explains the Gemara here. And that was what the Tanakh said here. But Abba Shaul seems to be saying that no, even Nidarim and Nidavot should be allowed to be brought in the, in the Beit HaMikdash on Yom Tov because since it's being done to honor God, the honor of God has to be greater than the honor of your own stomach and we should be allowed to bring those Korbanot on Yom Tov. That's the difference between the first version and Abba Shaul's version. According to the opinion that you're not allowed to bring individual voluntary offerings and vows on uh, vowed korbanot on Yom Tov. Don't think that there, it's really that according to the Torah, really you're allowed to bring these korbanot, but the rabbis that were the ones who came along and made a decree that you shouldn't do it because people will actually uh, leave their korbanot to bring them on the holiday when they're coming up 
for the holiday. And Rashi explains, He says, look, I'm going to wait for all my nidarim and the devot, and I'm going to bring them up during the holiday, and we're going to eat them there together. And maybe, therefore, you'll say that the rabbis prohibited you from bringing those korbanot, those extra nidarim and the devot that you've committed to, to over the course of the year, because you might leave, leave them over for the Yom Tov, and then you might actually end up not bringing them at all, maybe because you'll end up having more food than you thought, or you'll end up being negligent, or whatever will happen. So, since that's a possibility... Uh, maybe you'll think that it's only a rabbinic rule that you can't sacrifice these korbanot and yom tov because they didn't want you to wait till the last minutes of the yom tov to offer them. That's not true, he says. Actually, it's deoraita. deoraita nami because even biblically, you're not allowed to offer those korbanot on Yom Tov. Because if you think about the two loaves that are brought in Shavuot, which are an obligation of that day, meaning, there's no concern, maybe you're going to delay and or, or anything like that, because there's no delaying. What do you mean you're going to wait? You can't do it any earlier than that, than the day of Shavuot. That has to be done on the day of Shavuot. You can't do it any later. And it, there's only one, one set. I mean, it's not like you could have any... Uh, uh, you know, any confusion there, and yet, and yet the rule is that it doesn't override Shabbat or Yom Tov. It has to be baked. The Shtei Alechem have to be baked before the Yom Tov of Shavuot. They're not baked on Shavuot. And in fact, if it's a, if there's a Shabbat era of Shavuot, then you have to bake it all the way on Friday. It has to be baked early. It doesn't override Shabbat or Yom Tov. So you see that, uh, th- that even in a case, in other words, Rashi explains that we don't override uh, the, it's, he it says that, um, that in, in, we don't override the holiday, even w- since there's a possibility of doing it before, we don't override the holiday, even though it's something which is done the Shem Shemaim, it's done for the sake of Hashem, since it's not Kavodos Man, since the time is not on that Yom Tov that you're supposed to be baking it, that you're supposed to be preparing it. Therefore, we don't allow you to override the Yom Tov just on the excuse that, well, if I'm allowed to bake bread in my house for my own needs, how can I not justify baking bread also in the Bet HaMikdash for Shtei The answer is that since it doesn't have to be done at that time, that's not the designated time, therefore you're not allowed to do it at that time, even though it's being done, L'Shem Shemaim, and that's even a Deoraita law.